0: All right, you guys can open up to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. I don't know, one of those. Chapter 1 or 2. A lot easier to find in the book of Ezra. Uh, Genesis right there at the beginning. We are in the book of Genesis uh, because we are going to do kind of a a series within a series. Um, We are going to back out just a little bit. And try to, to take a different look at what we've been looking at with Ezra and, ne- and Nehemiah. Uh, this past Friday, Emily and I took, uh, took the kids and we went down to Huntsville to the uh, U.S. Space and Rocket Museum. I know some of you guys have been there, been on a field trip or something like that. First time that I had been since third grade and we loved it. We thought it was great. Uh, we kind of geek out specifically, Emily and I kind of geek out about all this space stuff. We think it's pretty, uh, we think it's pretty amazing and... Uh, you know, a few weeks or a few months ago, I shared with you all a video that kind of uh, set the scope of the universe uh, to proper scale so that we could kind of understand uh, the size of Earth versus the size of our solar system and kind of set things up for us. Um, And they had this video that you could watch there at this rocket center uh, in a planetarium. You've never been to a planetarium. It's like a giant movie screen on a big curved dome up above you. So it's like you're looking up at the sky. So you kind of lean back and you watch this uh, video that they had. And and what happens in this video uh, is is that a guy's giving a presentation and he's explaining kind of uh, what the earth is like. And so you start kind of where you are there in Huntsville uh, and then you slowly back out. As you back out, you get your perspective of where you are uh, in the United States, where you are. On the globe, you kind of start to feel a little bit small whenever you just get to the view of the Earth. And then what they do in this video is they then go planet by planet and then they start zooming out just a little bit. And they say, All right, here's where we are. Here's where the sun is. Here's where the nearest star is to us. And so what you do is you start backing out further and further. And then it says, All right, so here's this. Here's where our solar system is within our uh, galaxy, within the, the Milky Way. And you see that there and you start backing out. And then you realize that there's thousands upon thousands more galaxies that have uh, planets and have stars and have all those things in there and you just keep backing out. And this video will take you all the way out to what is the, the known edges of the universe as far as they can uh, roughly kind of calculate exists out there. So they just keep backing out, backing out, backing out. And it, what it does is it sets for you a perspective of where you are in the story, where you are overall. So the further you back out, the more, the more you see where you uh, fit. It was really cool. We loved it. We thought it was pretty, uh, We thought it was pretty amazing. And the thing about zooming out at this level, by the time you get all the way zoomed out, you're not even a pixel on this giant dome screen that they have. Like you're just like the entire solar system's not even a pixel. I mean, it's just so far removed, you can't see uh, anything about us. We are just a, a, not even a speck within the universe. And it can help whenever you see things at that level, to clarify for us who we are and where we are. Things like being in traffic and basketball games kind of get the, the proper place within the scale. Whenever you in in the scale, whenever you see where we fit in the universe, it it helps us to understand a little bit more about where we are. Something about zooming out and getting out of the minutia of our everyday can recalibrate and reset things for us. The same thing can, kind of, can be helpful for us when we study the Bible. So we've been walking through the book of Ezra. We'll start Nehemiah uh, here soon. Uh, but we're going to take a bit of a different perspective on the series that we're in. Now, we're still within the same series, The Long Road Home. But just like we kind of paused for Esther to kind of give more, uh, kind of fill in the blanks and fill in the historical context for Esther, we're going to pause for the next four weeks And we're going to move from the minutia of the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah and the bricks and all the little things that we're going to look at with Nehemiah. And we're going to zoom out really, really far so that we can get a better idea of where we are in the story. So it it still ties to Ezra and Nehemiah, but we're kind of filling in the blanks. We're filling in the context for where the story is set within the biblical storyline. See, what we've been looking at is the return of Ezra, uh, of, in Ezra and Nehemiah, is the return of exiles back to Jerusalem. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of pause right there, right at the end of the book of Ezra, and we're going to say, hold your place, now let's see where we're at. So that's, that's the goal over the course of the next four weeks. And we're going to start in the book of Genesis Chapter 1 and 2, and we're going to end in Revelation 22. We're going from the beginning to the end. So we've got four weeks to cover the entire Bible. That's the goal. And you see, the thing is, it can be really, really easy for us to, to, to kind of miss our place in the book of Ezra. You see, when you study a book like Ezra, a book like Nehemiah, that's a historical book, it can be very easy for us to kind of say, that was then, that happened to them, that was about them. But my prayer is that over the next four weeks, what you'll see is how Ezra and Nehemiah fit into the larger picture, and that you'll see how you fit into the picture as well. That's what our goal is. What I want you to see for the next four weeks is that these four weeks, these sermons, these these four things that we're going to look at are about you. They're about your everyday life. They're about something you can feel in your bones. And it's something that if we're honest, it can rob us of everything and simultaneously give us everything that we need to have hope in our hearts. It can do both of those things. This sermon series is about us. It is about you. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your financial situation, your race. It doesn't even matter what your religion is. What we're going to talk about the next four weeks is something everyone in here knows well. It is about us. Even if you don't believe in God, what we're going to talk about is something you felt in your bones and you know to be true. Con- con- contrast that with a, with a different idea that we've looked at in Scripture. So we're, we're tracing this kind of mega theme in Scripture. We've done that before with the idea of Covenant. Now when you study the idea of covenant, you've got to know something about the Bible. You've got to have some idea of the background of the Bible. You've got to to do some work to see how the the covenant is interwoven all throughout uh, the Bible. But what we are looking at over the next four weeks, you don't have to have any background for. You don't need to know anything about the Bible. It's because it's something that is universal to all of us. There are entire branches of philosophy and psychology that address what we are going to tease out. So hopefully this kind of sets the stage, kind of whets your appetite for what we're going to do. So like I said, the whole Bible in four weeks, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and what we're going to be talking about specifically is the idea of exile in the Bible. The idea of exile in the Bible. Now we won't get anywhere close to talking about all the different ways that the Bible talks about exile. Um, that would be a great, great Bible study for you to undertake on your own and to pull out all these different ways that it comes up. But what we're going to do is we're going to take this theme of exile and we are going to start in Genesis and we are going to kind of trace how it goes all throughout scriptures. It's uh, uh, all throughout scripture. It's one of the themes. Some would argue it is the theme. That holds the entire bible together that holds the whole story together and so what we're going to do today is we're going to see how that story begins now when i say exile i wonder what do you have in mind what do you think of when you think of the word exile i'll tell you what i think of I think of Siberia, that's what I think of. I think of like snow, I think of uh, a horrible prison, you're working on like a chain gang out in the snow, and there's nothing around you for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. It's barren, it's empty, it's cold, it's separate from all the world. That's what I think of when I think of exile. And while that picture might be somewhat kind of helpful, it's not really the best picture. Instead, what I want you to think of is this. I'm going to give you two definitions for the word exile. Both of these definitions we will use extensively over the next four weeks. So two definitions. One is long, one is short. One is technical, one is more kind of a feeling, okay? And this is going to anchor us for the next four weeks. So the first one is the long one. It'll come up here. You can write it down there. Exile, the experience of pain and suffering, That results from the knowledge that there is a home to which one belongs. Yet for the present, one is unable to return there. This sense of deep loss may be compounded by a sense of guilt stemming from the knowledge that the exile is from sin. Especially from our own sin. So that's the first definition. We'll keep it up there so that you can write it down. If you want to write it down, you can kind of read over it and kind of chew on some different pieces of that. That's the longer one. That's the technical one. It's a good, it's a helpful one. Here's the second one. This is the short one. Exile is the memory of a place you've never been, but you deeply long to return. A memory of a place that you've never been, but you deeply long to return. Those two things together is kind of what, the, what, what exile is in the Bible. It's what the Bible means when it says exile. It has less to do with being far removed to a place like Siberia, and it's more about where we aren't than where we are. Does that make sense? So instead of saying exile is about being in a different place, it's about the place that you can no longer be, even though you desperately want to be there. It's wanting to go, to, go back to a place more than being relegated to another place. So everything I've said so far is just a setup for the rest of the morning. So let's get to uh, Genesis chapter, chapter 1 and then chapter 2 is where we're going to read something. So in, uh, in, in, in one whole chapter into the Bible, we're already well into our story. Chapter 1, we've completed the days of creation. We've gone through and we've looked at all these different things. Each day has been met with uh, the constant refrain about how things are good, how creation is good, in the case of Eve, very good, and this is God's declaration over and over and over about his creation. Chapter 1 ends this way, Genesis chapter 1, 28 through 31. And as much as I want you to take in the individual words of what we're reading here, I want you to, I don't know how else to say this, I want you to take in the general feel of what we're reading, right? So instead of like parsing every word, we'll look at some of the words. I want you to just get the feel for what's being communicated overall in these verses. So Genesis 1, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird in the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God sets up creation, and he, he gives a, a, a mission To Adam and to Eve. He sets up creation with a plan. And the plan is that Adam and Eve would do what? They would be fruitful and multiply, and they would subdue the earth. That what began with them in this location where they are would then spread via their offspring throughout the rest of the earth. That's the plan. So whenever it says be fruitful, multiply, and subdue, it's not saying in this one place. It's saying as you multiply and expand, as you do these things, you subdue everything else. So take what is here and apply it and spread it everywhere else. Then in chapter 2, we have a more detailed look at the creation of Adam and Eve and the home that they are going to live in, this place that they are then supposed to replicate throughout the rest of the world. Genesis 2, verse 5. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You surely, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree in the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So this chapter is an idyllic chapter. This chapter really kind of lays out how things are supposed to be for us. And it says this is how it's supposed to work, and here's what it looks like. Even as you, as you read it, it makes you wonder what it could have been like to be there. However, even in that good creation, there was something that Adam and Eve were not privy to. God had placed the tree and told them that now is not the time and that they should refrain from the fruit of that one tree. We all know the story of what happens then in chapter 3. Satan shows up, tempts Eve. Adam fails to protect his wife from Satan's lies. They both eat from the tree. And this is the fall of man. All that was true in chapter 2 is now changed by the end of chapter 3. And we must deal with the effects of that decision and what we see next we've looked at several times here providence but i want to look and i want to read some of this again and we'll kind of we'll kind of pull out some some uh some different parts of this so genesis chapter 3 after adam and eve have eaten god has come he finds them they're hiding from god god says who how are you what are you doing trying to hide from me and they kind of play this blame game thing and then this is what god says to them in genesis chapter 3 verse 16 To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In verse 17, and to uh, to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now there's a ton that we can unpack here. We're not even going to get close to unpacking all of it. I wouldn't have time if we were in here for another month to unpack all of it. But I want to focus on two things, So what did we say, the mission given to Adam and Eve uh, at the end of day six, back in chapter two, what was the mission that was given to them? They were to be fruitful and multiply, and they were to subdue the earth. And what are the two things that are primarily frustrated in the curse on Eve and on the curse on Adam whenever God curses them? It is Eve's ability to be fruitful and multiply, and it is Adam's ability to subdue the earth. And both share in those curses. It's not as though Eve has one curse and Adam has another. Both share in those curses because of the nature of the way that we are uh, intertwined together. So the the mission that was given in chapter 2, subdue the earth, spread what is in Eden all over the earth, has now been completely frustrated. Because they can't be fruitful and multiply well. And because now subduing the earth goes from a joy that works exactly how it should to work. Work becomes work, it becomes painful, it becomes difficult, it becomes hard. So the mission that we were given has now completely been changed. Which is interesting now because we get to the, the, the next consequence for this sin, and it's one we don't talk about a whole lot, but it's one I want to focus on this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what we see here is that man was made to live and to work and to care for the Garden of Eden. To subdue it and then to spread that idyllic presence in the Garden of Eden all throughout the earth. It was meant to be a place of harmony with God, of harmony with the land, of harmony with one another, and even harmony within the work that we do. Yet sin has marred all of that. Every piece of that. Now that peace with God has been destroyed. That land has been taken away. They're cast out from the garden. Their relationship and their childbearing uh, tasks have been frustrated. And now work becomes work. What happens to Adam and Eve? It's exile. It is exile. Exile. Adam and Eve and all their offspring after them would forever be exiled. This includes us from the place that was supposed to be home. Not just the place, but all that came with the place. The relationship with God. The simplicity in the task that we had been given. The, per- the, the perfect blessing for the th- these things to work how they're supposed to. All of these things have been taken from them and from us, exiled from the garden. Home has been taken away from them. The mission to effectively spread the garden throughout the whole earth and to subdue the whole earth has now been made, if not very, very difficult, altogether impossible. Not only can we not spread the beauty of Eden, we can't even experience it ourselves. Our home has been taken from us. And the rest of the Bible, and frankly, the story of the rest of humanity, is us trying to figure out how do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to that place? How do we get back home? What can we do to stop feeling like outsiders, outcasts, and failures? Let's go back to our first definition of exile and look at Eden in light of that definition. It is the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home to which one belongs, Eden. Yet for the present, one is unable to return there. This sense of deep loss may be compounded by a sense of guilt stemming from the knowledge that exile is from sin, especially our own sin. We know that there is a home that we belong to and we desperately want to return to it. But our sin has kept us from the garden. We know our exile is not some unjust punishment uh, from some vicious, unfeeling dictator. We know in our bones that our exile is justified and it is the result of us continuing to repeat Adam and Eve's sin over and over and over again. And so we, we feel the longing for home coupled with the weight of the fact that we cannot get there because we constantly place ourselves far from home. We are exiled, every single one of us. We have this deep sense in our bones that this is not how it's supposed to be. And at the same time, justly, exactly how it should be. And this is true whether you are a Christian or not. All of humanity feels the weight of this. They may not have the vocabulary for it. They may assign the wrong or the improper motives for it. They may not go back to Genesis 1 and 2 to understand it. But everyone feels this sense that something isn't right here that something has gone wrong and this place is not the home that we thought it was or that it should be. Andrew Peterson has a song called Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And it begins like this. It says, Can't you feel it in your bones that something isn't right here? Something that you've always known but you don't know why. Because every time the sun goes down and we face another night here, waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. Can't you feel it in your bones that something's not right here? That something has gone wrong? And you can write a song like that, and he knows that it will connect with everyone. The question then is, how do we set ourselves in the bigger story? Can we zoom out far enough to see where we are? We know that things aren't right, and we know we just want to get back home. We just want to get back home. We've never even been to Eden, but we somehow remember it. And we spent our whole lives trying to get back there. In 1939, one of the greatest movies in history was made, as Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion all began their march down the yellow brick road. Do you remember why Dorothy took her first step on the yellow brick road? Where did she want to go? She wanted to go home. The whole movie is about a journey home. It connects for all these years because we can identify with what Dorothy wants. It's built around this theme. She's been exiled from Kansas. Some of you might say that. If you live in Kansas, you're exiled to Kansas. But she's been exiled from Kansas, and she wants to find her way back home. Listen to these words in light of what we've lost in the garden. See if they don't reframe the way you hear this song. This song named the the most popular song in history a few years ago. And I assume they mean with words, and they're not talking about like Beethoven. Listen to these words. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, skies are blue. And I'm reading this because you don't want me to sing it. Skies are blue. And the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops, way above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me. Somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Birds fly over the rainbow. Why then? Oh, why can't I? The song is singing about the longing for the garden that is gone. Where troubles are gone. Where where you live at peace with the world around you. Where dreams really do come true. And what are the dreams? That you'll be back home. But as she says at the very beginning, it's just a land that she's heard of. It's not one that she knows. Why has this movie been so successful? It's because it taps into this longing that we all have. I mean, think about it. If she just wanted to get to the, to the Wizard to get a new car to drive around the land of Oz, that movie doesn't work. Nobody cares if she gets a new car. I don't care how nice the car is. Nobody cares if she gets a new, dro- new car to drive on the yellow brick road. Think if, she had, th- think if she had just gone all the way to the Emerald City to get a really cool Emerald necklace. It doesn't it didn't work, does it? We would have forgotten the movie because it, a, a longing for an Emerald necklace is not one that we have because we know it won't, we won't satisfy anything. think if she had been in search of some magical power so that she could compete with the wicked witch and show the wicked witch who is boss. Now that man might have made a movie that maybe more guys would watch and some really cool action scenes, but it's not going to be a movie that lasts because even that is not ultimately what we long for. It endures because it's all about going back home. Even a child who who grew up in a broken home, full of pain and sorrow, can identify with a longing for home, even if it's a place that they've never lived in before. And this is true because this is our story. All of humanity, each one of us haunted by home. The memory of a place we've never been, but we desperately want to get back to. Haunted by home. I'm going to try to make this point here uh, by quoting and showing a couple of scenes from uh, one of, if not my favorite, uh, movie. And I debated long and hard about whether or not to do this, um, but I'm going to because I think it's just an extraordinarily powerful thing. It's the movie Field of Dreams. It's what this quote is from, and we'll look at this quote here in just a minute. Uh, It's the movie Field of Dreams. It's a baseball movie, which is why I first fell in love with it as a kid, but as I got older, I realized it is so, so much more. For a long time, I thought it was not just a baseball movie, but it was a movie about fathers and sons, which which changed a lot as I got older and saw my relationship with my dad. And then as I had a son, I saw that these things began to change and it became a much more emotional movie for me, one that I cannot watch uh, and not cry. We'll see if I make it through these clips today. Um, But it's most famous for the phrase, if you build it, he will come. And what it's all about is a guy, Kevin Costner, he's Ray Kinsella, who plows under his field in order under his cornfield in Iowa in order to build a baseball field. He hears this voice, he has this vision, and despite all logic, he decides to do it. So he builds this baseball field, it puts him in massive financial trouble. He's gonna probably lose the house if he doesn't keep this if if he builds this field. But he does it anyway because he's convinced this is absolutely what he needs to do. Now, we can stretch the metaphor out, metaphor out too far, so don't, we, we don't have to go too far, but the gist of the story is that Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, is this farmer, and he builds this field, and he has no idea why. But when he gets to the end of the movie, spoiler alert, it was released in 1989, though, so I think I'm clear. So, spoiler alert, it's not really about the baseball field at all. It's all about restoring a fractured relationship with his dad. His dad had died, he had, he had left, ran off to college, and he, his dad had died while he was away at college, and when he had left, he had said some hateful things, and he never mended that relationship with his father. And that had kind of nagged at him and, and, and bothered him for years. And at the end, what we see is this picture of a, of a reconciled father and son. We'll get there here in just a minute. But he builds this, uh, this field and even though he doesn't know why, he, he goes and he does it. It's central to the plot line, all of these things about his father. It's what carries throughout the whole thing. And the scene that we're about to watch, the first one, is a, is a, a speech by James Earl Jones. And uh, the speech is about baseball, but it's really about more than that. Because, and I didn't realize this, I've, I've seen this movie I'm, way more times than I can count. And I never have tied these things together, but as I prepared this sermon, I was like, oh my gosh, I... How did I miss this? This is right there, like in plain, uh, in plain sight. The baseball field serves as so much more than a field in the movie. In fact, it's a stand-in for the Garden of Eden. Now, hang on with me. Some of y'all have seen this and you're like, all right, I'm not following this. But listen, just replace, as you hear this, this stuff that, that James wrote, just replace baseball field with Garden of Eden, and then we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, here in just a second. So let's go ahead and show the first clip.
1: People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it is money they have the peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. They'll sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find we they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines of their set when they were children and cheered their heroes and they'll watch the game and it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters the memories will be so thick they'll have to brush them away from their faces Ray, when the bank opens in the morning they'll foreclose people will come, Ray you're broke, Ray you sell now or you lose everything The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come.
0: So in that speech there, he has so many illusions that you can draw out if you're thinking about the garden. He says at the beginning, people will come and they won't even know why. This is, this is the story that we're talking about. They may not know why, but we know why because they're looking for something in their past that they, they, maybe, they maybe don't even necessarily know. They remember it, but maybe they've never even been. They're looking for something that they've lost. And he gets to the end. He's, he says that it, it will be uh, all, that, all that's right with the world, all that was good and could be once again. This is us. This is our story. But we're not looking to a baseball field. Although there's a lot of people that are, and I probably was at one point in my life the same way. But we're not looking for a baseball field, we're looking for a garden. So that all that was right in the world, all that was good, can be made good again. That language of longing for something that you've lost and you don't even know what it is, something that was good and could be again, even the most cynical among us knows what he's talking about here. This next clip that we're going to watch is just a few minutes after this clip that we just saw. Ray looks over and he sees somebody and after a few seconds he realizes that that somebody that he sees is a younger version of his father. The one who he had last seen and and walked out the door, said hateful things and walked away. And now this this clip may seem blasphemous and I'm not going to lie, I've always thought that it was a little blasphemous until these connections started firing for me uh, over the course of the uh, preparing this sermon, so just just watch the clip and hang with me and we 'll talk about it so let 's go ahead and show the second one.
1: You catch a good game. Thank you
0: it's so beautiful here for me
1: well for me it 's like a dream come true.
0: Can I ask you something? Is, is this heaven?
1: It's Iowa. Iowa? Yeah. Because one,
0: It was heaven.
1: there a heaven oh yeah it's the place dreams come true
0: All that gets me. So that clip works on so many different levels. It's because it's what we all long for. It's home again. It's the father playing son or father and son playing catch, because the fractured relationship is no more. It has been mended. Friends, this is what heaven is. Don't miss that. It is the healing of a fractured relationship between our father, God, and us. It is a return back to Eden. The dad looks around and he says, he says that heaven is the place where dreams come true. Now maybe on an earthly kind of temporal level, then, then we, we can see what he's talking about here. And No, Iowa is no heaven. But whenever you take it in the larger scheme of things and you move out of the baseball and just the father and son relationship there, what you see is that the dreams that he's talking about are these deeper dreams that connect and that, uh, that tie to our deeper longings to a place we cannot get back to, a place that we cannot get there ourselves, It connects to something deeper within us that is true. It is my core belief, and I think it is the Bible's central storyline, that this is what we all deeply long for, for exile to be over, for the fractured relationship to be repaired, for the dream of Eden to come true again. And it's why we all know this feeling so well. In the movie, that healing, the Eden is represented by the field, the restored relationship with his dad. And you see him look around at his family. And what is that? For Ray, that's home. He feels like he's found home. That thing that he never had as a child with his father, he now has home. That dream has come true. And you know what's wild? I looked it up. The guy who wrote this story... He's an atheist. Doesn't believe in God at all. How can an atheist write this story drawn straight from biblical themes? It's because that's in all of us. That's how he can write that story. Because deep within his bones, he felt that story too. You, however, cannot go out and build a baseball field to atone for your sin that is not available to us and thankfully we don't have to because there's no amount of baseball fields we could build to fix things but the great thing is that god gave us a hint as to how we could get back to the garden right before he cursed adam and eve right before he exiled them he curses the serpent and this is what he says to the serpent in genesis chapter 3 verse 14 the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, to du- and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your, o- between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the proto the the first mention of the gospel. That even though Satan would strike the offspring of the woman's heel, he would crush the serpent's head. That ultimately he would win that battle. And that points us forward to Jesus. That points us to where we are going over the next few weeks as we talk about Easter and what is about to come and Palm Sunday next week. We get a hint right here at the beginning... That there's not something we have to do in order to get back to Eden. But there is something and someone who will do something that will get us back there. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of us. I hope you feel that and you sense that. There's nothing we can do to create heaven. But it is a place It's represented by Eden and we're all trying to get back there. But there's only one way to get there. The offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that in our exile, even in our sin, our rebellion, our just exile from Eden, you have not left us without hope. You have not cut off that longing from our hearts, but instead you, you give us Christ in order to fulfill that longing. That as it intensifies, as we feel it, as we know it, as we long to return, that we would not continue to, to look in all these other places to try to get us back to Eden. But that we would come to Christ that we would know him and him crucified. And that one day, because of Christ, that relationship that was broken, all that was lost in the sin of Adam is set right in the death of Christ. that we can know that place that we've never been, but so desperately long to be. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.